1, Acts 17, 22 to 31. Now, the context of this passage is uh, Paul, who was an evangelist and a missionary, was traveling everywhere to tell people about Jesus. And in this chapter, he happened to be in the city of Athens. Uh, the people, the Greek at that time, uh, if I remember correctly, I was reading somewhere that they were worshiping everything. So they had so many temples and so many gods. And just in case they have missed one, they just had a temple or uh, a place where they can worship. And they have a sign there to the unknown God, just in case they missed one. So they have that one uh, temple right there, just in case. And uh, that's the context here. Paul is just going around, and he's looking at that great city. It's probably like New York City today, or London, or you know, one of the greatest cities of uh, that time. And he looks at all these temples with all these statues for gods, and he got uh, you know, burned for Jesus. And then he starts talking to the Greek uh, of that time in this chapter about Jesus. And here's what the Bible says. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious because of all these statues that you have. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor he is worshipped with man's hand, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. He has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also, um, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. So these are two quotes that Greek poets would say during that time. They would say, in him we live and move and have our being. And they also say, we also are his offspring. So these are two quotes that were familiar with the Greek of that time. Uh, and Paul quoted them to support his argument. And then he said, verse 29, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who, whom he has ordained. And that will be Jesus. Amen. He has given assurance to all of this, of this to all by raising him from the dead. How did God assure the whole world that he will judge every single person? By raising Jesus from the dead. Let's see, let me ask you guys a question. In that passage that we just read, how many times does Paul talk about all men or everybody? 
I'll give you a hint. It's bolded. Three times, right? He mentioned all men or all people three times. In verse 25, in verse 30, and in verse 31. In verse 25, he says, Note he is that God worshipped with man's hand as though he needed anything since he gives all life, breath, and all things. Right? That's verse 25. Verse 30, Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands how many? All men everywhere to repent. And verse 31, if you skip to the last part of that verse, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Amen. Three times in his sermon, Paul talked about all men or everybody. And in these three times, we see three points that Paul is trying to emphasize to us. He's trying to tell us about God's pursuit of all. He's telling us about God's command for all. And finally, he's talking about God's assurance to all. Amen. Let's say these three points together. Make sure you're still awake. Number one, God's pursuit of all. Number two, God's command for all. And number three, God's assurance to all. Let's talk about God's pursuit of all. And that's what he really was telling us here in verse 25. God doesn't need to be like silver or gold to be worshipped in this manner. He doesn't need anything. And then he says, since he gives all. Now, when he says all, does that include you and me? Right. That includes every single person in this world. They say there's about 7 billion people in this world. Now, Paul is telling us that not in masses, but even individually for every single soul in this world, God gives them life. Think about that. So your life is Something God specifically given to you because he cares about you. Amen? Breath. Every single breath you take, that's also a gift from God. And again, Paul is not talking about God dealing with masses here. He's talking about God deals with individuals. This is how God deals with each and every one of us. He gives you life. He gives you breath. He gives you what? All things. Right? Your job, your money, your car, everything, every blessing from God in your life, it is God's given to you. And God has a very purpose of doing that to you individually. You guys follow me? This is not, again, God deal with the masses. God deals with every one of us. And not only that he did all of that, but he's also the creator of all. We see that in verse 26. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the faces of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times. Do you know what that means? That the year you were born... The day you were born, till the day you die, God has already pre-appointed that for you. You were not by accident born in the 21st century, amen? Or at that time and that age in history and in the church. God wanted you to specifically live during that time. And not only the time, but also the place where you live. Look at this. Um, and then it says, and the boundaries of their dwelling, right? Where you live. Mark and Nancy has moved from Virginia to North Carolina. Well, guess what? God has determined where they're going to live in North Carolina, how long they're going to live in North Carolina, when, uh, well, in Virginia, and then when they move to North Carolina, how long they're going to live there. And the boundaries of their very living is already preordained by God, right? It seems like God is pretty involved. Don't you think so? 
right? When he gives you every breath, when he gives you all things, when he creates you, when he determines when you're born, where you're born, and where you die, and how you die, and all these details, God has preordained everything in your life. God is in charge of every single minute detail of your life. Why? Why does God do all of that? Why does he give you life and breath and your blessings and the cars and everything that he gives you? Why does God determine where you live and the time where you're living? Why would God do all of this? Verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord. You guys with me? Verse 27. In the hope that they might grope for him and find him. What Paul is telling us here is this. Every drop of blessing from God to you and me is for the sole purpose that you just might look for him and seek him so you can reach out for him. Amen? And then it says this. Though he is not far from each one of us. He's not far. The fact that God is giving you all of this so you can reach out to him doesn't mean that God is just distant from you and he's far and you really have to work hard. The fact of the matter, God is so close to you and he's not, he is close to all of us. Every individual in this world, God is so close to them. As, as, as people who go to church in, in America in the 21st century, we always wonder about what about people who live in Africa? What about those who live in the jungles of Africa and the jungles of Amazon? Who never heard about God and about Jesus? What God going to do to them? This verse addresses that problem, right? God has determined when they're going to be born, where they're going to be born. God meant for them to be in that place. God orchestrated that, that they will live in this place. Right? So they can reach out to him. So through what they can see, the tiny blessings that God is giving them, they can reach out to God. And then it says, though he is not far from each one of us. Amen? Do you know what that means? That you and me here in Franconia, Alexandria, Virginia, God is as close to you as he is close to somebody who's living in the jungles of the Amazon and the jungles of Africa who never heard about Jesus. The God who's so close to you is just as close to them as well, right? God loves all and he's drawing all to himself. He's giving all blessings. He's trying to show people that he cares and he loves, about, loves them. You think you're here today by accident? You're not here today by accident. You're not listening to these words by accident. It is God trying to make you think about him and reach out for him that he might know you and you might know him. The very fact that you're listening to these words is God orchestrated so you can understand who God is and how much he loves you. Amen? Every t single time you're in trouble and God intervenes into your life. This is God showing you that he is good and that he loves you, that he's willing to take you in no matter what. Amen? Every single time there is a tragedy or a death in the family, it is God speaking to you, drawing you to himself. Every incident, everything, every day in your life, God is orchestrating everything for you for the sole purpose that you might seek him and reach for him. Amen? We see that throughout, Paul said that a couple of other times. Romans 1.20, for example. For since the creation of the world, Paul said, the invisible qualities, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, even those who don't know anything about God, being understood from what he has made so that they are without excuse. Even if people never heard about God, 
They should follow the, the, the nature that God has made it, everything that he has made. And they follow the small lights and the small hints that God has given them. And if they follow that, they will reach out to God. They are without excuse in spite of the fact that there is no preacher for them to tell them about Jesus. Amen? Now think about this. Whose responsibility is it to reach for the other? God is the creator and we are the created. Who should reach for who? Should God reach for us or should we reach for God? Let me reverse that. Let me give you an analogy. At work, who should please who? Who should make you happy? The boss should make you happy or you should make the boss happy? Right? You should make the boss happy. It's not really the boss's responsibility to make you feel comfortable at work or happy at work. It's good to have a boss like that. But the fact of the matter is it is your responsibility to figure out what your boss wants and try to accomplish that. Right? Right? And in the same way, it is every man's responsibility to reach for God. It is not necessarily God's responsibility to reveal himself to every mankind. He does it because he is love and he want to reach to every one of us. Amen? He's not obligated to do it. He already gave us some clues and hints and if we follow these we will reach out to God. The problem is not that God is not trying to reach out to man. The problem is that man doesn't want to reach out to God. Amen? Acts 14, 16, and 17. Paul and Barnabas here, and, and they're preaching. And here's what, again, I think it's Paul again, saying about God. Who in bygone generation allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, worshiping idols in ignorance, far away from God. Verse 17. Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that they were walking away from God, he did not leave himself without a witness. Think about that. What Paul is saying is this, people are going far away from God, and God is not going far away from them. God instead is going after them. You guys follow me? So it's like people running from God, and God is running after them, not away from them. Amen? So God, who in bygone generation allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, nevertheless, in spite of the fact of their ignorance, and them running away from God, he did not leave himself without witness. He always was witnessing to them reaching out to them, trying to guide them back to him. In that he did good, in that he did good. Give them rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. What, what Paul is saying here, that every drop of goodness from God is a sign that he's reaching out to you so you can search back for him and reach out for him and grope him. Amen? Amen. God's pursuit of all. How many people in this world is God pursuing, according to that verse? All. all. If there's 7 billion people in this world, how many person in these 7 billion people you think God is reaching out to? All. all. You know what that means? That means that includes you and that includes me. If you're here today, I want to tell you that God loves you and he is searching for you. Amen? In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God, the creator of everything. God says, let there be light, and light comes to existence. And then we come into Genesis 3, and that's when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And what do we see God doing after Adam and Eve fell into sin? God is coming searching for Adam and Eve, right? And he's saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? God is looking for him, right? It's like... Right after the Bible declared to God that God declared to us that God is the creator of everything, the very second character that the Bible is revealing to us about God is that he is the one who's pursuing sinners, right? 
Genesis 1 and 2, God is creator of everything. Genesis 3, God is the one who's going after Adam and Eve who broke his law and sinned against him. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God, we talked about this before a few weeks ago, sending the prophets one after the other so he can bring the nation of Israel back to him. He's searching for them. He's seeking them. He's pursuing them so they can come back to him. And the very God who searched for Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and searched for the nation of Israel and even some Gentile nations throughout the Old Testament, guess what? He came down himself in the person of Jesus so that he might seek and search for those who are lost. That's you and me. Amen? God is in the business of pursuing sinners. That includes you and that includes me. Every single soul in this world, God loves. And not just passively loves. He's actively loves, right? He's going after them with hints and, and clues and trying to draw them to him so they can just get the hint and try to come back to God. Amen? God loves you. And he doesn't just love you. He's pursuing you this morning. He's telling you that he's going to give you a better life than the one you're living. He's telling you that he's willing to take you back no matter what. And there is hope in him. And there is power in him. And there is life in him. And he wants you to hear this message loud and clear. That's why you're right here today to hear these exact very words. Amen? God's pursuit of all. But number two, we see also God's command for all, right? We see that in verse uh, 30. Truly, these times of ignorance, God has overlooked, but now commands how many? All men. So how many in this world God is commanding them to repent? All of them, right? Not, now, no exception, not a single one. All men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he, whom he has ordained, and that's Jesus. In this verse, we see God's command for all. Now, repentance in the Christian faith is such a foundation, really. It's the only foundation in our relationship with God. And it is such a valuable thing that without it, really, you can never know God. As a matter of fact, it is so important that the very first word Jesus uttered as a preacher of the gospel when he was on earth is what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen? The very first word recorded in a message that Jesus has preached is repent. Repent, because it's very important. Amen? In, in Luke 13, 1 to 5, we read this story. Again, we might have touched base on this before. A breaking news. People came to Jesus because something happened. Pilate has killed some Galileans, and they come to Jesus saying, Hey, Jesus, did you hear about what happened? Jesus said, what happened? It's like the Galileans, Pilate has killed, and he mingled their blood with the sacrifices. Guess what Jesus said? Jesus said, you think these, because they died, they were more sinners and were more wicked than you are? The fact of the matter is, unless you repent, you shall all perish. What Jesus was telling the people of that time is this. The fact that people died and perished doesn't mean that you're better than them. God is just giving you another chance so you can repent. They might have ex exhausted all their chances, but you still have another chance to repent. But if you do not repent, you also will perish like these Galileans who died and Pilate has shed their blood and mixed it with the sacrifice. Amen? Look at what Jesus said. Unless you repent, you shall also perish. What Jesus is telling us is this. Repentance is the only way that you can actually have life, right? Unless you repent, you shall also perish. There is no other way that you and me can have life except through 
Repentance. You guys follow me? So let me explain to you how does it work. In order for any one of us to be saved, God has to do a part, and you has to have to do a part. And when you do your part and God does his part, then it works. The plan of salvation works. So God's part is that Jesus would die on the cross and that he would be raised from the dead. Now think about it this way. We talked about this before. You and I have sinned against God, right? And the sin, the Bible says, sin is breaking the law of God. And when you break the law of God, you put yourself under the judgment of God. Again, think about it this way. You might have heard me saying this a million times before. Today going to be million and one. Um, if I am speeding, Micah, go out, please. If I am speeding and the cop gets me 55 and 35 and I go and stand before the judge. I'm sorry, sweetheart. Um, and I go stand before the judge. Now, I have broken the law, right? I was speeding. I was 55 and 35. I'm guilty of breaking the law. And I stand before the judge. Because I broke the law, there is absolutely nothing I can do to offset the judgment and the, the penalty that I have earned because I have broken the law. You guys follow me? I have to pay the fine or go to jail. And that's my options. It doesn't matter if I'm a good person. It doesn't matter if I'm a pastor. It doesn't matter if I've never had a speeding ticket since then. It doesn't matter even if I'm sorry and I'm repenting of breaking the law. There is nothing I can do to offset breaking the law. The only way I can be made right is that the penalty of the law must be paid, right? And I'm stuck under that penalty of breaking the law. And that's you and me. In this life, in our relationship with God, you, we already broke the law of God. Some have lied, some have cheated, some have manipulated, some have stolen, some have been that, done this or done that. And we're all guilty before a holy and a righteous God. And we come to God with our sins and we say, God, we are truly sorry that we have sinned against you. Would you please forgive us? God will say, I know you're sorry, but guess what? I am sorry too. There is nothing I can do for you. You have broken the law and there's a penalty of breaking that law. And unless that penalty is satisfied and is paid, you cannot go anywhere, right? And that's precisely your condition and my condition before God. We're stuck under the penalty of breaking the law of God. But that's why Jesus came from heaven. He died on the cross and Jesus paid your penalty and my penalty on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross and paid our penalty, he satisfied once and for all the righteous requirement of the law of God. And because Jesus satisfied the requirement of the law, now you and I can go free. You guys follow me? Again, like let's say I stand before the judge in court and I'm speeding. My fine is $200. I can't, I don't have it. I have to go to jail. Now, now, uh, the judge, I tell the judge, I'm sorry. And the judge will say, well, there's nothing we can do really. Pay the fine or go to jail. Emmanuel comes in and he paid the $200 for the judge. Because Emmanuel paid my debt that I owe the court, right? Even though he doesn't have to, he did it out of the goodness of his heart because he cares about me. Now that the law is satisfied, now the judge can let me go free, right? If Emmanuel did not come in and pay my debt, there would have been absolutely no way for the judge to let me go free regardless, even if he wanted to, right? Because if he, if he will let me go without paying the fine, he will be a corrupt judge, right? So it took somebody else to pay my debt so I can go free from breaking the law. And that's precisely what Jesus did. That's why there's no salvation apart from the cross. Because if it wasn't for what Jesus has done on the cross, there would have been absolutely no way for none of us to escape the judgment of God because we all are stuck under the penalty of breaking the law of God. Amen? 
the cross and the resurrection is God's part in your salvation. Now, your part is this, not to work, not to try to please God, not to do good works to offset the sins that you have committed. Remember, we're stuck. There is nothing you can do about it under the penalty of the law of God. But your part is to repent. That's your part in your salvation plan. All what you have to do is just say to God, God, I am sorry for breaking your law. I am a sinner and I cannot be made right with you in my own merits, in my own strength. But today I just forsake every single sin I have ever committed. And I commit today that I will live for you from today forward. Amen. And if you make that commitment to God, that is the repentance that God is commanding that you should do so that you can take advantage of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Amen. So Jesus died, he paid the price, and only through repentance that you can accept what Jesus has done for you. Amen? But it's not a half-hearted repentance. It is not, Jesus, I'll give you 50% of my life or 50% of my heart. Jesus will take it all or he's not going to take anything at all. Amen? Amen? It's like marriage. I use this all the time or dating or anything like that. If, 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 if the day I got married to Katrina, I would stood before her and she would vow to me and say, I promise you before God and man that from today forward, I give you 90% of my affection. Guess what? I would have run out of that altar. Amen? I would have left the church and took off running because I don't want 90% of her affection, right? If she would have pledged 99% of her heart to me, guess what? No deal. I'm out of there. I am not signing any paper. Amen? Because I want the 100% of her heart, and I'm pledging 100% of my heart. Right? This is how a covenant relationship would work. And if you're going to come to Jesus, this is what you need to do. You can't come to Jesus and say, oh, you know what, Jesus? Uh, cigarettes are getting really expensive, and I really cannot afford it. I am willing to repent of cigarettes and quit smoking. But this guy that is not really my husband and I'm sleeping with, oh, I like him so much. I cannot leave that. Jesus doesn't take half-hearted disciples. Amen? You're either all in to live for him or you're not in at all. Amen? I'm not picking on any particular sins. I'm just try, try, trying to drive a point that you're either 100% committed to live for Christ or you don't even have to follow him at all. Amen? That is the repentance that God is commanding. That is your part in the plan of salvation. You don't have to try. You just have to be willing to let Jesus come into your heart and change you. But you have to be willing to give it all to him. Amen? Amen. Now let's look at this repentance that, repentance that God is asking for us. Let's read that part one more time. Verse 30. These times of ignorance God is willing to overlook. But now... He highly suggests that all men everywhere should repent. No. Does it say highly suggest? No. What does it say? He command, right? Yeah. Right? And guess what? You recommend in all translations and all versions. There is no variation on that. No Bible says that God is highly suggests or highly recommend. It would be really good, God says, if you can't repent. God doesn't say that. God says, I am commanding you to repent, right? Now, how much options do you have to do to follow or now follow the command of God? If it's a command, you can't say no, right? If you say no, there's a consequences. Repentance is not optional. It's mandatory. If you want to avoid the wrath and the judgment of God that you have brought upon yourself by breaking the law, you must repent. There's no other way around it. Amen? God commands how many people? All men. All men. Does that mean you're off the hook? 
No. If you're a man or a woman today sitting in this pew or anywhere in this world, this is God's command to you. This is what you need to do to receive what God has done for you on the cross. Amen? Amen. This is no option. This is a mandatory thing. If, if you want to be saved, if you don't want to be saved, that's up to you. Right? And God commands all men, whenever they want to, to repent. Right? Does it say that? When? Now. It's not whenever you want. It's not tomorrow. It's not next decade. It's not whenever you think about it. God is commanding every man all where, right here, right now, April 1st at about 11 o'clock in the morning. God is commanding you to repent right where you're sitting right now. Right? The Bible says that today is a day of salvation. Now is an acceptable time. I wish you lived to be a hundred, but this might be your last time to hear that God loves you and that he's pursuing you and he's drawing you back to him that you must repent so you can have the life that you have in him. Amen? Amen. God has promised us so many things in the Bible, but God never promised you tomorrow. It is now, the Bible says, a time of salvation. Right here, right now, Easter morning, April the 1st, 2018. It's your time to repent. Amen? Well, the good news is this. God is commanding you to repent, but he's willing to overlook all these times of ignorance. Amen? What that tells me is this. It doesn't matter how many sins you have committed. It doesn't matter how far you have got away from God. It doesn't matter how many people you have hurt. It doesn't matter how bad you have ruined even other people's life. Regardless of how deep you are in sin, God is willing to forgive all of that if you just repent that's it Jesus died on the cross he opened the door wide open you just have to go in if you don't go in even though Jesus died his death and his blood that was shed for you on the cross will go in vain unless you repent Jesus said you shall also perish amen don't you think that you much too much of a sinner for the grace of God amen don't you think that there is a sin that is too hard for the blood of Jesus to cleanse once and for all? God is willing to overlook, to wink at all the times of ignorance. It doesn't matter how bad it was. God is willing to forgive you today, right here, right now, 100%. Amen? Now, why is God commanding you? Why is he commanding you to do it right now? Here it is, because he has appointed a day when he will judge everyone by righteousness or in righteousness through Christ Jesus. Amen? The reason why God is urging you to, to, today to repent is because there is a day of judgment coming and it's coming soon. And the Bible tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Amen? God's command to you to repent and give him the 100% is not because he's a mean, uh, grouchy old God who just so demanding and he asking for everything. He's commanding you to do this because he loves you and he cares about you and he doesn't want you to die and to perish right it's like when I drive and I'm not seeing the stop sign and I pass through it and Katrina sitting next to me and say watch out or stop she commands me very decisively to stop right there and right then because she knows that I am about to be in danger and because of her love for me she's speaking so urgently and so decisively for me to listen to to see the danger that I'm about to get into amen and that's precisely why God is commanding you today, right here, right now, to repent. Because you're in the great danger apart from Him. And He's urging you to repent so you can be saved. Amen? Amen. 
God's pursuit of all. Today God is pursuing you. He loves you. He's coming after you. He has been going after you for years. Why is he doing all of this? Because he sent his son to die on the cross to pay for your sins. And now he's asking you to repent so you can take advantage of that perfect and complete salvation that he has done for you on the cross. God's pursuit of all. God's command for all. But number three, God's assurance to all. And that's what linked this passage to the resurrection Sunday. I know it's Easter and we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And it's very interesting how Paul here linked the resurrection of Christ to something very strange. He linked the resurrection of Christ to God's judgment. In a way, what Paul was telling us at the very last line in this passage that we just read, that God has given assurance. Assurance of what? Of his righteous judgment, right? He says this, verse 31. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, right? And he has given assurance. Assurance to what? To that day of judgment by the man he has ordained, right? Of this to how many? To all. That includes you and me. How? How did God guarantee Proof beyond the shadow of any doubt that the day of judgment will come and that you will stand before him by raising Jesus from the dead. And that's why we're here today. We're here to celebrate that. The resurrection of Christ is such an awesome blessing to those who take advantage of his death. And it's such a curse if you don't know Christ. Amen? Because that resurrection is a proof beyond any doubt. It's a guarantee beyond any question that the day of judgment is surely coming. And if you don't know Christ, if you have not repented, you are in deep trouble because of the resurrection that proves that the day of judgment is coming. Amen? How is it? How is the resurrection of Christ is linked to God's assurance um, for his judgment over sin? Two ways you can look at it. Number one, Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that everybody else will be resurrected. Think about it this way. If Jesus would have come, claimed to be the son of God, and did all these amazing miracles, and then he dies and go to the grave, and he stay there in the grave up till today. Amen? And then the Bible also keeps telling us that all the dead will be raised, risen from the dead. Whether, whether you're a saint or you're a sinner, everybody will be uh, risen from the dead and be judged by God. I don't know about you, but I will not take the words of the Bible that everybody will be risen very seriously if Jesus would have been still in the grave, right? Because here you are, you have the Bible tells you, oh, you know, be made right with God because after you die, you're going to be resurrected and stand before God in judgment. But Jesus himself is not even resurrected. He's still in the grave. The one who claimed to be the son of God, still dead and in the grave. And we can go visit his tomb up till today. Amen. The very fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a guarantee that the resurrection is real and that God's judgment is real. Amen. The very fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, it is an assurance and a proof beyond doubt that you also will be risen one day to stand before God also. Amen. Amen. But number two, if the judge is dead, you're really off the hook, isn't it? Right? Paul said that God will... Judge everyone by a man whom he has ordained. Who's that man? Jesus, right? And Paul said that this man, God has given assurance to all by raising him, that man, from that dead. Here's how I look at it. Imagine in Fairfax County, there's only one judge who deals with the traffic tickets. It's only one. 
You stand before him or you just don't stand before a judge, right? And they have a speeding ticket. And before my court date, a week before my court date, the word, uh, I, ha I hear that the judge is dead. Guess what? I am so happy, right? Because the only one who can judge me is dead. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I, can, I don't need to stand before anybody. I don't need to have to worry about it because the only one who's qualified to judge me is well dead now and nobody else can actually execute judgment over me. Amen? Amen? And that's precisely what the Bible tells us. That's what Paul is telling us here. The judge is alive and well. Amen? The judge, even though he died, he has risen from the dead. And because he's alive, that is a guarantee beyond the shadow of any doubt that the judgment is surely coming. Amen? If the Bible keeps telling us that Jesus is the judge and he's still in the grave, I will not be worried about it the slightest bit. Jesus is dead. Who cares, right? But the very fact that Jesus rose from the dead, the judge is alive. And if the judge is alive, then you are surely going to stand before him. And I am also surely going to stand before him one day. Amen? Amen. The resurrection of Christ is a blessing to you and me if you know who Jesus is and you have taken advantage of his death. But it's a curse to you and me. It's a shadow. It's a, it's a proof beyond the shadow of any doubt that you are in deep trouble if you have not repented and you have taken advantage of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Amen? Amen. Let me close with this. God pursues how many people? Oh. That includes you, right? God commands how many people? Oh. oh. And God is giving assurance through the resurrection of Christ to how many people? Oh. Guess what? If you die and you don't repent and you perish, it is not God's fault at this point. Because he's speaking to you. He's pursuing you. He already sent Jesus to die for you. He already perfected your salvation. All that you have to do is to repent. He's not going to do that for you. Amen? This is something you absolutely have to do. You have to make a choice either to follow Jesus or not to follow him. You have to make up your mind. He's not going to do that for you. Amen? 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 Think about it this way. If I hold a gun, bad illustration. If I threat my, uh, threaten my wife with, I'm never going to give you whatever. I'm going to hold all the finances unless you tell me every single day that you love me. And she does it, but she does it out of obligation because I am threatening her. I'm making her life miserable if she doesn't say it. Is that real love? No. no. If she doesn't say it willingly, then... You know, it's not worth it. I mean, she might pretend to say it, but if she doesn't say it willingly, it's not worth it. And guess what? God is the same way. He's not going to force you to repent. He's not going to force you to walk with him. He loves you so much to force you to do that. You're with me? You have to be willing to walk with him. You have to, to be willing to love him. And I honestly don't think of one single reason why you wouldn't. Why you wouldn't. He died for you on the cross. He endured that shameful and disgraceful death for your salvation. I don't know about you. I don't think of anybody else that deserves your life other than Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and pray.